especially as it's revealed in the gospel. Uh, this morning, we're beginning our quest for um, a more gospel-centric life. And I uh, would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans, uh, the first chapter of Romans. It's, uh, uh, if you didn't bring your own Bible, but I would encourage you to bring your own Bible for this study and that you would uh, mark it up, write things in the, co- in the margin as God speaks to you and so on. Uh, but if you use the uh, one that's there in the seats, it's on page 1112. And uh, I would just warn you uh, up front, I feel it's only fair to warn you uh, that the book of Romans has been used by God in very significant ways in people's lives over the course of history. Uh, St. Augustine you know, came to Christ because of Romans chapter 13 over his sexual sin when he was convicted by what's written in Romans 13. Uh, Martin Luther basically started the Reformation because he was convicted by what uh, Romans 1.17 says, the just live by faith. And uh, the whole Reformation started from there. Out of that, uh, John Bunyan, when he was in uh, prison, uh, ended up writing Pilgrim's Progress as a result of the study uh, of the book of Romans. And so I just want to suggest to you that the book of Romans is like spiritual dynamite. If you are willing to approach Romans with an open heart and ask God to speak to you through this book, I believe you can expect that God will change you. And that uh, on the other end of this study, uh, you know, when we're here in 2013, uh, uh, you'll be a different person if you allow God to really work through uh, this uh, book of Romans uh, into uh, the core of your heart. And so, uh, as we mentioned, you know, as you know, the, the core of any relationship with God is the gospel. The gospel. And uh, the gospel is God's good news. And I want to suggest that a gospel-centric life is simply a reorienting of all of our life around the core dynamics of the gospel in our relationship with God. You remember, uh, perhaps, from last week that um, I suggested to you that all religion is based on good advice, but Christianity is based on good news. Good advice is all about what you have to do, Good news is something that God has done. It's the announcement of what God has done. Christianity is all about good news. And uh, I I suggested, I know, the Bible is full of good advice. The only thing is that the good advice in the Bible quickly becomes bad news whenever you try to live it. And you discover that you cannot live the way God designed you to live. And so the good advice in the Bible quickly becomes bad news because none of us lives by the advice that God put in the Bible. And I want to suggest that the the gap that's created between God's advice and your and my reality is what's called sin. And sin is bad news. Sin is really bad news because sin separates us from God. Because God is so infinitely holy, as we sang this morning, holy, holy, holy that he separates himself from sin. And so this gap that you and I live with between what God created us to be and who we really are in reality creates this separation from God, which is a definition of death. Separation from God is death. And so the Bible talks about this uh, reality, this gap between who God is and who God made us to be and the reality of our life, and the Bible says, listen, the wages of sin, what you earn by not living up to God's advice, 
The wages of sin is death. The sting of death is sin. The reason for the separation between people and God is this issue called sin. The problem that we have is not that we're sick and we need some help. It's that we're dead and we need some life. The wages of sin, what you earn by that gap is death. The wages of sin is death, it says in Romans. But the free gift of God is everlasting life. Life. Death and life. This is a life and death issue. The gospel is the difference between being dead or alive. It's not like the gospel can help us be a little bit better people or, you know, and so. No, this is a matter of life and death. And so a lot is on the line in understanding what the gospel actually is. Uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, the apostle Paul says, look, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. And Paul's going to take 11 chapters in the book of Romans to explain the gospel, and then he's going to get to chapter 12, and he's going to say, therefore, be transformed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, Paul says, for all who believe. Now, whenever you talk about the gospel and you talk about salvation, people always ask this question, you know, about us Christians, like, salvation from what? Being saved from what? Can I tell you? you? Here's the right answer. From God. I need to be saved from God. From God's wrath. If you keep reading, look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. And the good news is, yes, there is a way to get out from underneath the wrath of God, which is created by the gap between the good advice and the good news. And the good news is that God has made a way. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, cursed by God is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. There is no person who has ever lived up to God's advice. There simply isn't, and it creates a gap, and that gap creates separation from God. Nothing in our world is right. But here's the good news. The good news in Romans is put like this in Romans chapter 4. God justifies the wicked. I love that line. God justifies the wicked. You know what most people think? God justifies the godly. It's the exact opposite of what most people think. Most people think, oh, no, God just a, I have people say, oh, you're a pastor. You must be great in God's eyes. No, God doesn't justify good people. God justifies the wicked. The good news of the gospel is that even though all of us have earned this death, that God made a way for us to be justified in his presence, just as if I'd never sinned. Justify. And, um, and God does this by declaring us righteous on the basis of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think, you know, uh, all of us probably, if you're, if you're a believer and you believe the Bible, just like God creates the physical world by a declaration, God says, let there be light, there's light. God says, let that unrighteous person be righteous. And by the declaration of his word, he creates a new person. 
In the same way that God creates out of nothing, the whole physical world, God creates spiritually by the declaration of his word that when you put your faith in Christ, I am going to declare you, God says, righteous in my eyes. And the rest of your life is a process of living up to what God is doing and making and has declared you to be. Until ultimately you're in heaven and you will be glorious as Jesus Christ. How does God do it? He does it by his word. He does it by declaring you righteous on the basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. What a great gift. What good news. This is something God does. This isn't something we do. This is something God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And it's by the declaration of declaring a, 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 an unrighteous person righteous that we are qualified to stand in God's presence and to be reconciled with him. Even though we were wrong and are wrong, we can become right through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul in Romans starts out and he, um, you know, he begins by introducing himself. Uh, Paul has never been to this church in Rome. Paul didn't start this church in Rome, although Paul knows some of the people that are in the church there at Rome. He's met them along the way, and you get to the last chapter of Romans in 16, and he's greeting a bunch of different people that he knows, and, and so on and so forth. Most uh, historians think that probably somebody from Rome came and, um, in, you know, uh, Somebody heard the gospel from perhaps Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion who we met when we studied the book of Acts, then went back to Rome, shared the gospel, and the church at Rome was born. Uh, from that list in Romans 16, we know that the church was made up of both Gentiles and Jews. But notice how Paul introduces himself. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. i just like to pause and, and think about this a minute. You know, Paul's self-perception of himself was that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. You know, um, that's what was in his psyche, if you will. That's how he, that was his personal identity. That's how he thought about himself. He sees himself in a supporting role in God's story. Unlike so many people who think that God should be a supporting, in a supporting role in our story, that he exists to kind of, you know, live out our story and make our... No, Paul says, no, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. It's not, hey, this is Paul, eminent theologian. It's not, hey, this is Paul writing, you know, master of Old Testament theology. Pharisee of Pharisees. Author of many books. Now, Paul, a servant, a servant of, of Christ Jesus. You know, in the Bible, there are two kinds of servants. And uh, I would suggest to you there's still today two kinds of servants. It's the same as it, it always has been, I think. The first kind of servant in the Bible is a person who gets themselves into debt and they can't pay. And so they auction themselves off. And uh, they find somebody to buy them. Exodus chapter 21, you can read about this. They, somebody, they go on an auction block. Somebody buys them for six years, and the money that they pay goes to the creditors that, they owe, that this person owes. And they become a slave for six years, and in the seventh year, uh, they're to be set free. Uh, they are what you might call an indentured servant. They have an obligation to work for six years. Exodus chapter uh, 21. The second kind of servant is a person 
who voluntarily uh, chooses to continue to be a servant because they have come to love their master. They become what the Bible calls a bond servant. And uh, what would happen when a person made that decision is that the master would take that servant, bring him over to the doorpost, take an awl, and um, in his right ear would drill a hole through his ear to indicate that this person had voluntarily given up his will in order to give himself to the will of his master for the rest of his life. He was a voluntary servant. He gave himself, you know, to the will of his master. He surrendered his will to the will of his boss. He became a supporting actor in the story of his master. And so I would suggest to you that Paul understood himself as one of these bond servants, as the Greek language tells us. And I think it's appropriate for us this morning to just ask ourselves the question, how do you perceive yourself? Suppose you were writing a letter to somebody to introduce you. Who are you? What would be your identity? How would you describe who you really are? What would you write? What would you say? I think it's a, a good occasion to kind of ask us, what is our, our self-perception? Because if you're a Christian, you understand uh, that you started out with a huge debt to God. God made you to be like himself, and you're not. And it creates this gap. And since God is the one who gave you your life, you're in debt to him. And it's a debt that you cannot pay. Go ahead and try to make it right, and you will see. You have a debt to God that you cannot pay. And as a result, you stand condemned. But you were bought. You were paid for. You were redeemed, as the Bible says. And uh, your debt, however, was so great, your offense was so hurtful to God that it couldn't be covered with any amount of silver or gold but only by the precious, way more precious blood of Jesus Christ. Somebody had to give up their life in order for you and I to be purchased back for God because the penalty for our sin is death and separation. And so Jesus Christ comes and offers his life, a life that was not corruptible, a life that had no sin of its own, Jesus dies in your place to give you your life back from God. Jesus came into this world to pay a debt that he did not owe because you owe a debt that you cannot pay. And that's at the heart of the gospel, is this transaction whereby God takes his only begotten son. And so a Christian is somebody who recognizes who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and voluntarily... Is becomes over the course of time so impressed with who this Jesus is that he offers themselves as a servant to be in a supportive role in his story in order that he might accomplish his plans, in order that the call of the kingdom might come through us to the world in which we live as we sang the new song this morning. What a great song. So a Christian is somebody who is a servant of God. And in the kingdom of God, we're servants of who's called the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the first thing Paul says about himself, you know, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Second thing he says, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. 
Um, an apostle is simply a person who's sent by an authority, a sent one. And uh, so, uh, technically speaking, the apostles in the New Testament era had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. So, technically, there is no such thing as an apostle today. All right? However, uh, the word uh, missionary is simply the Latin translation of apostle. And the idea of being sent by our Lord is still very much alive in the Great Commission. Go into the world and make disciples is for everybody. And so while technically there are no apostles, truthfully, all of us are missionaries. All of us are called to be missionaries. And so Paul says, you know, he was called by God. You know, when you're a servant and you have a master, uh, when you're a sheep and you have a shepherd, when you're clay and you have a potter, well, you do what that person has called you to do. And Paul recognizes he was called to be an, a, a, an apostle, a, a missionary, especially to the Gentile people of the gospel. And uh, the idea of being sent is the same as what's behind that idea of apostle. Called to be an apostle. And then the third thing Paul says about himself is that he's been set apart. He's different. He's been set apart. He's not run of the mill. He's been set apart for the gospel. And uh, this is a great thought, you know. In Galatians, uh, when Paul writes to that uh, group of people, he talks about how he was set apart since his birth, how God had his eye on him uh, before, he was birth, before he was even born. In Ephesians, he talks about how God has chosen you know, him before he was born and so forth. And, and at his conversion in Acts chapter 9, uh, he's told uh, he's a chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Do you remember in Acts chapter 9? Now, to be set apart for something means you have to be set apart from something. If you're going to be set apart for the gospel, you're going to be set apart from something else so that you can be for this. Now, Paul, you know, before he came to Christ was the Pharisee of Pharisees. The Pharisees were set apart for the law. That's what the Pharisees set themselves apart for, is to be meticulous adherents to the law. But Paul is set apart for the gospel, for the good news. Paul is set apart to be a proclaimer of God's great news, the gospel, uh, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, to save anybody who puts their faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ. It's great news. Paul is set apart from good advice to good news so that he might go about on God's behalf as an apostle, as a missionary, uh, with the good news of the gospel. And you notice what it says there, again, in the first verse. I know you're thinking, how are we ever going to get through this if you don't get moving? <laughs> <clears throat> Set apart for the gospel, listen, of God. The gospel of God. The gospel is not man's idea. The gospel is not some invention of people. It's the gospel of God. And uh, it's been in place for a long time in the mind of God. It's the gospel of God. It's God's good news. It originates with God. It's 100% of God. The gospel's not a novelty. The gospel's not something new. It's the outworking of what God has promised the whole time. The gospel, can I suggest to you, is not a New Testament revelation. 
The gospel started to be revealed in Genesis chapter 3.15. It's what God's been talking about since the beginning of time. The gospel is God's good news, which took year after year after year to work its way into fulfillment. The church is a revelation of the New Testament, but the gospel is not a revelation of the New Testament. And so you notice this. Uh, it's the gospel of God, verse 2, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his Son. It's the gospel that was in the mind of God before the beginning of creation, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, you know, uh, and, um, and it's been in the Scriptures ever since. It started in Genesis 3.15. It's very easy to see in God's dealing with um, uh, Abraham, the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, it's detailed out in Isaiah and through the prophets. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, I love this, this passage of Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, let me just read a couple of verses here. It says, concerning this salvation, concerning the salvation that comes by good news, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted, listen, when the Spirit of Christ predicted to the prophets the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, the first and second coming of Christ, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets in the Old Testament did not understand everything. They couldn't, they're trying to figure out, they couldn't see the time gap between the sufferings of Christ where we're living right now and the glory of Christ when he returns. And, you know, I love to talk about prophecy as, you know, seeing two mountain peaks but unable to see the valley in between. We look down the corridor of time, you can see the mountain peaks, but you can't see the valley in between. And so the prophets were, were intently searching and desiring to figure all this out, and they couldn't. And, so, and it says, verse 12, it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when I spoke of these things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Do you think that the whole Old Testament was written for us? That the prophets, it's not so much about what was happening back then, but the prophets, what they revealed about the first and second coming of Christ, the good news of the gospel, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the hope of salvation, the glory of God that's going to come to this earth someday. They were serving you and me in that. They were serving us. They didn't understand it at all. Well, uh, no, I shouldn't say at all. They understood something, but they didn't understand it all. And they were searching and trying to figure out and, and so on and so forth. It's the gospel that's been promised uh, in the Old Testament. And look at this. Uh, I, this is so important to understand. This gospel that's been you know, revealed since the beginning of time, verse 3, uh, that the prophets have been talking about, this gospel is about his son. This gospel regarding the son of God. The gospel is regarding the Son. The gospel is about a person. Okay, the gospel is about a person. The gospel is localized in Jesus. The gospel is personal. Can I say, the gospel's about a person more than it's about a principle. All sin is against God. It's against a person. It's not about a principle. It's not, oh, I violated a law. It's, no, the God who made me and loves me is offended and hurt by my actions. All sin is against God. And so the solution is also about a person. 
the person of God who sacrifices his son in our place so that we could be reconciled. And so I have to say, there is no good news apart from Jesus Christ. There is only one begotten Son of God, and it's Jesus Christ. There is no good news apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. You'll notice this in verses 3 and 4 about Jesus Christ. It says, this is regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ the Lord. There is no good news apart from the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, This Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. In fact, I would say to you that Jesus Christ was um, perfect humanity. If you want to see the way you were created to be, study the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was perfect humanity, and Jesus Christ was undiminished deity. Undiminished deity. If you want to understand what God is really like, study the life of Jesus Christ. Now, the theologians call this the hyperstatic union. It's not that Jesus was, you know, 50% man and 50% God. No, he's 100% man and 100% God. Very unique. Never been another, only one begotten Son of God. There's only one. And so it's not a matter of, you know, oh, just any name will do. You know, any religion is the same. They all end up at God's throne. No, no, no. No, there's only one son, and it's this son. Unto us a son is given. Humanity, perfect humanity. He was a son born to Mary. Uh, I'm sorry, a child is born. That's the humanity. A son is given. That's the divinity. It's, it's, the son is given to us because he always was. A child is born, that's the humanity. A son is given, that's the undiminished deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, 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 what a great, you know, this, there's only one. The gospel is located in a person. Because all sin is against a person. There is no gospel apart from Jesus Christ. If you want the good news to be central to your life, if you want to live a gospel-centric life, then you need to find it in Jesus Christ. The only place that the good news connects is in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, when I, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to who? Myself. Will draw all men to myself. There is no other Messiah. There is no other way to be right with God. There is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved. There is no other good news apart from the person of Jesus Christ. He's the descendant of David who was Israel's greatest king, and I take that to mean uh, that he's the heir of the throne of Israel. And the Bible indicates that when he comes back, he will rule the world from the new Jerusalem, from a throne uh, in Israel. And please notice here that uh, in this introductory uh, statement, uh, it's through the spirit of holiness that he became the son of God. Mary is not the mother of God. I hate it when I hear that phrase. Mary is the mother of Jesus' humanity, specially chosen. But she is not the mother of God. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, and who through the Spirit of holiness is the Son of God? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is not like God. Jesus is God. He is God. And that's why there's only one Jesus. The Bible says if Christ is not raised from the dead, look, verse 4 goes on to say, um, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the, from the dead. You know what the Bible says? Uh, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. Christianity is a hoax. Eat, drink, and be merry. Forget it. Everything turns on the resurrection. It is the assurance that there is life on the other side of the grave. And then look at verse 5, the next verse. Uh, Ask the question, that's Christ Jesus our Lord. And then it says, through him uh, and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Um, I had a phone call uh, this week from somebody who got some really bad news in their life. And, um, and they're a believer, and they were asking me the question, uh, they said, why would God choose to save me? I just can't get over it. I just can't fathom it. Well, here's the reason why God has chosen to justify the wicked. Uh, verse uh, 5 uh, just says to us that um, through him and for his name's sake. You know why God loves you and, and wants you in his family? So that forever and ever he can show off what a great God he is. You know why God justifies the wicked? Because God loves to take people like us who are made out of the dirt of the earth and for all of eternity point to what he makes us in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of God he is. It's for his name's sake that God gives grace to you, undeserved favor, right? It's for his name's sake that God provides this great salvation that's been in his mind since before he created the world. It's for his name's sake. You are in a supporting role in his story. He doesn't exist to, to play some supporting role in our story. Uh, that's why when you understand that, you become so enamored of the way that God is that you want to voluntarily be a servant of his. You want to enlist in his program. You want to be a part of calling the kingdom into this world. And you become a bond slave, a bond servant. And then I love this phrase here. It says, the obedience that comes from faith. You know what the result of uh, being a bond servant of Jesus Christ is and understanding the gospel, living a gospel-centric life, is an obedience that comes from faith. It's the opposite of obedience that comes from fear. It's the opposite of the obedience that comes from fear. The obedience that comes from faith is filled with joy, filled with great pleasure in fulfilling the master's desires filled with great honor to think that I would be able to represent to other people the good news of God that's been in the mind of God since before the beginning of time. That I could be enlisted as an ambassador for the good news of the kingdom. The obedience that comes from faith is the opposite of the obedience that comes from fear. I hate it when I hear a Christian say, oh, I better be good or God's going to get me. Come on. God already got you on a cross. That's what that was all about. All of your sin is gone. The obedience. And now, verse 6. Um, listen. And you also 
are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. You also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Can I get personal with you for a minute this morning? Can I just ask you this question straight out? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? God is calling you to belong. If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, you might ask the question, well, who do I belong to? Who, do I, who calls the shots in your life? Who do you belong to? Can you honestly say, like the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. That's who's called the shots in my life. Because I've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. What a great uh, statement. Do you believe the gospel? Do you understand that you need to be saved from the wrath of God, which comes against the gap that's between what God made you to be and who you are? And that God is more than willing to fill that gap, but he doesn't force it on you. Do you realize that you are in debt to your creator with a debt that you cannot pay? And if you don't square up that debt before you die, you will be eternally separated from this holy God. Do you realize why the gospel is such good news? In fact, the bad news, you know, that uh, already is in our life. All of us have all kinds of things. We're always dealing with the bad news that's in the world. The whole creation groans for release from the effects of sin in the world today. All of us suffer from the consequences of sin. It ought to be a reminder to us that we're living with bad news. Unreconciled world to God. But there is good news, and it's that somebody, there's one somebody who can satisfy your creator for your debt, your indebtedness. And he was willing. And that gap between God's holiness and our reality, there is some good news. Verse 6, and you also are among those who are called to belong, to belong to Christ Jesus. Now, you know, maybe you've misunderstood the gospel. Uh, maybe you've been so concerned to be politically correct that you've missed the true identity of Jesus Christ and who he really is. Emmanuel, God with us. The only begotten son of God. Uh, or, you know, maybe you've misunderstood God. Maybe you didn't realize that the love of God is located in the person of Jesus. Do you remember in, um, in 1 John in the Bible uh, talks about this? You know, uh, sometimes when I work with married couples, I give them this little book called The Five Languages of Love. Because sometimes in a relationship, you're speaking one language, you think you're saying, I love you, and the spouse has a different language, and she's not hearing or he's not hearing, I love you. They get an entirely different message because it's like a German and a Frenchman trying to speak to each other. I mean, they just, they just keep missing each other because there's different languages. Well, you know, God has a language. God has a love language. And if you don't hear it, and you kind of take your language and put it on to God, and you think, you know, you don't hear, you don't hear. Here's, here's what it says. It says, this is how God showed his love. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's how God shows his love. That's his language, Jesus Christ. You can't say, you know, oh, well, you know, God is love. And in my mind, that means that he's just this big, mushy glob and doesn't really care whether I do right or wrong. Or all that. No, that's not God's language. That's your language. It doesn't work with him. That's why he wrote the book. 
so that we can understand his language. This is how God shows his love. He sent his one and only son so that we could live from this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loves us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's God's love language. It's been in his mind from before the world. It's the good news. It's the gospel. It's located in his son. Please don't check out of this life saying, oh, God is love and somehow or another he'll just embrace me. It's kind of a movement in the church now that God is love is so intense that everybody will be saved in the end. You don't really need to think that God would be so exclusive that he would put his love into his son and unless you come to his son, you won't be saved. It's kind of a movement. If you read like Christianity Today and some of the you know, contemporary things that are happening, some of the movements in the church... Christianity apart from the gospel. It's not real. So perhaps, you know, uh, maybe you aren't experiencing God's love in your life. Maybe you say, you know what? If I was to write a letter to somebody who doesn't know me too, I don't know that I would say, hey, I'm Dave DeVries and I belong to Jesus Christ. I don't feel it. It's not the way I'm living. It's not my identity. It's not who I think of myself as being. Well, Maybe the Holy Spirit's poking at you this morning. Maybe God is saying something, you know, deeper than just your mind and trying to probe into your heart. And so I'm going to ask you to just pray with me this morning. Would you just bow your heads and let's, uh, let's close in prayer this morning. Perhaps if you have a sense that, that God is kind of stirring uh, at the level of your heart, maybe you could just tell him, just be honest with him. Just say, God, I know that you're speaking to me this morning. You might just be able to say something like, you know, I know I don't live up to your advice, God. I know I can't live by your laws, your commands. And I know that you're calling me to belong to Christ Jesus. I know that you want this good news that you paid such a huge price for, the gospel. I know you want it to be at the center of my life. And just tell God, maybe, you know what, I'm going to trust Jesus from now on. I'm going to entrust myself to him. I'm going to be a servant of his. You might thank him for calling you this morning. Or, you know, maybe you believe or you have believed for a while that the gospel is just a principle. It's a theory. But you're holding back from loving a person, the person of Jesus. Why? Maybe you're more like an indentured servant this morning saying, you know what, you know, I, I'm gonna, I understand the gospel, I understand its principle, and I'm going to try to work off what I owe so that I'm not so indebted. I hate being in debt. I like being independent. I'm an American. And maybe I'm living more like an indentured servant trying to work off my debt than a bond servant who is so impressed with my master and how he provides for me that I voluntarily want to belong to him. Maybe you just need to tell God that this morning. Maybe you really want Jesus to be central and the gospel to be centric to your whole life. Tell God. Just tell him and thank him. Thank him for the good news. Thank him that there's more than just good advice coming from God, but there's good news. Thank him that in the face of death, you know the good news of the resurrection and that you're going to put your faith and trust in the person of Jesus Christ and that you want to love him more than ever before. Amen.